You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the April 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with an interview of Drs. Chai Bai and Christine Krauss giving an overview of their paper entitled Representation of Skin of Color in Rheumatology Educational Resources on behalf of their colleagues. Could you please review the major findings of your study? Yeah, of course, we would uh, absolutely love to. And obviously, thank you for having us to do this as well. Um, I, I think for me, at least as a fellow trainee, kind of getting into this researcher mindset too, it was really shocking and it was important for me to kind of take a large step back and uh, really think about what we were finding too. Uh, we had originally gone through the data pretty early on during my first year of fellowship. And I was, truth be told, I was kind of scared to uh, put out the data without any collaborative effort or validation. I remember kind of going over the data preliminary with some of the authors too, and it's it's pretty striking to see. I think the big buzzword to sell is that 9% of all images we came across, only 9% are of dark skin type. And for me as a fellow, as a rheumatologist to come out and say something so bold, uh, pretty frightening to be honest. And so I'm so thankful for Dr. Krause and just having a collaborative workspace too, and just to be able to go through everything and it's always hard to try to convey these things on a podcast or a video of uh, what did we actually find. But I hope I do it justice. But both of us went through literally every image uh, that we came across in ACR Image Bank. We went through everything in Kelly's and Firestein's textbook, 11th edition. We went through the 6th edition of Hawkberg, uh, Secrets, as well as Washington Manual. And I mean, truth be told, we identified 1,604 images, but uh, we definitely went over lot of pictures too. So uh, good for me as a trainee. Obviously, it's always nice to see more and just be ready for boards. So it, it was fun, uh, humbling, fun, and kind of just eye-opening too about where we have room for growth. And so, you know, looking at the data, kind of nitty-gritty format too, all resources out of 1,604 of them, only 9%, 145 were of dark skin type. Going through Hawkberg at that time, uh, it's it's really nice to see such the quick change that they've been doing too. But at that point in time, there was about 856 images that we could identify. And of them, only about 12% were dark skin type. When we went through Hawkbird too, Hawkbird had a lot of images, uh, really nice images done, about 462 of them, and only 4% were of dark skin type. Kelly's and Firestein's had about 277, and of them, only 7% were of dark skin type. Um, Rheumatology, I think the numbers just look a little skewed because it's a truncated textbook, obviously. So there was only nine color images, and of the nine color images, only three of them were of dark skin type. And Washington Manual, uh, obviously just being a very you know bullet point format, there were no pictures in there at all. Uh, but I, I still think it was important to include that because uh, for me as a trainee, I use all these resources pretty much on a daily, if not weekly, format. So just kind of show where we're working with right now is uh, nice to kind of lay the land for all of us. And then I, I think the biggest challenge we had as we were kind of putting the paper together, 
trying to figure out what we want to show in terms of figures and tables. You know, how do we convey this in a nice format? Because I'm a visual learner and I need to see stuff in a, you know, nicely presented format. I think that's where I kind of struggled a bit too and just talking to all the authors. It, it was really nice and helpful. And when we look at what was the most indexed, we see that scleroderma, vasculitis, lupus, dermatomyositis, rheumatoid arthritis, gout, as well as psoriatic arthritis. These were the most indexed uh, findings in our in our research. And just to kind of uh, pick out some of the numbers for us too, vasculitis, only about 6% of 125 images were of dark skin type. 21 out of 119 images in the lupus uh, index were 18 or were of dark skin type. Uh, only six out of 110 in the dermatomyositis patients that we saw in these texts and educational resources were of dark skin type. Uh, shockingly, two out of 110 of rheumatoid arthritis was of dark skin type. And I, I think uh, I'd love Dr. Krause's thoughts here too on the psoriatic arthritis part. Only one out of 66 images were of dark skin type too. That was pretty shocking to see. Yeah, I, I agree. Thank you so much, Dr. Bay, for um, collaborating and for looping me into this study. I had such a great time doing it with you. I think, you know, I just have to echo what Dr. Bay said. I think that it is really interesting. You know, some of some um, literature published in dermatology found that even of acne images, most of the skin types that are seen are white. And so I think this kind of goes back to the psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, really in patients with rheumatologic conditions with dark skin, they can present with different morphologic variants and even subtle disease presentations which affects diagnosis, management, and therapies. Um, and so kind of looking at more common things um, as well as rarer diseases, we really need to have a good representation of uh, skin types across each condition. And so I think this study really highlights, you know, the amount of skin of color images and it kind of is a call to action to increase representation of skin of color in rheumatology textbooks going forward. And, you know, um, sorry, oh, oh, yeah, just one thing that I thought was so uh, interesting, especially in talking with all the authors and Dr. Krause too, is how the way sarcoidosis played out. Uh, in textbooks, it's always described as a black patient with XYZ findings. And so I already have this illness script in my head. And when I was going over it with Dr. Krause too, she brought up a very interesting point that I had never even thought about. Uh, there's different phenotypes of sarcoidosis. There's European sarcoidosis, there's African black sarcoidosis too. So, you know, this in a sense, overrepresentation too, is it causing just biased illness scripts? So, um, so much for me to kind of learn about and just an enjoyable process of kind of going through all this too, definitely. I want to thank you guys. I mean, as a pediatrician and a lupus specialist, two things strike me. One, it was almost impossible to diagnose a salmon colored rash of systemic JIA on dark skin. I look back and you gotta wonder how many I missed. Okay. The other teaching point I make with fellows and the trainees is in lupus. It took me, well, probably older than you are, you two are, over 30 years to realize that the male rash isn't hypopigmented. I always said, oh, look, it's a hypopigmented rash. No, it's not. It's my eyes can't recognize red 
on dark skin. It took me over 30 years to recognize that. And I teach them that you get somebody to lie down and if the fluorescent lights hits it at the right angle, you can see the redness. So I think this is crucial. I think that we might uh, underdiagnose, mistreat people because of our intrinsic bias. And I just want to thank you for bringing this forward. And in this day and age, when we do under-treat, we talk about this in rheumatology all the time, under-treating racialized people, people of local, lower social economic, they have worse outcomes. You wonder if some of it isn't in our eyes that we need to recognize other skin colors. I hope you enjoyed listening to the overview of the paper entitled Representation of Skin of Color in Rheumatology Educational Resources, and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with the doctors Chai Bai, Christine Kraus, and Sheetal Desai, and read the full-length article. There is also an accompanying article by doctors Lisa Zucker, of Washington School of Medicine, St. Louis, USA, and Dr. Brian Mandel of Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine, Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland, USA. The editorial is entitled, Rheumatology Education Needs a Splash of Colors. Both articles as well as the full interview are available on our website at www.jroom.org. The next article to highlight examines the important factors associated with disease activity in patients with early spondyloarthritis. In their article entitled Lifestyle Factors and Disease Activity Over Time in Early Axial Spondyloarthritis, the spondyloarthritis caught early cohort, or the so-called space cohort, by Exeshu and colleagues, determined the importance of body mass index, smoking, and alcohol consumption in determining disease activity over a one-year time period in patients with early axial spondyloarthritis. The SPACE cohort consisted of 344 people, mean age of 30 years, of which 49% were men, who were part of this prospective cohort and who were followed for a one-year period from study entry. Only a minority of the patients had radiographic evidence of sacroiliitis. The majority of patients were treated with an NSAID. As may be expected, there was improvement of the ASDAS and its components over time. In women, but not men, obesity was associated with a higher ASDAS compared to those with a normal BMI. In both sexes, alcohol consumption was associated with a lower ASDAS over time, while smoking was associated with a higher ASDAS over time as compared to never smoking. Results were similar in a multivariate analysis adjusted for all lifestyle factors 
and confounders. In an accompanying editorial entitled The Need for Space to Plan the Future for Spondylar Arthritis, Mark Wang and Michael Wiseman discuss the implications of this study and how it pertains to clinical practice. Both articles make suggestions on how to apply the findings of the study to clinical practice. I will now turn to study of medication for the treatment of patients with SLE. In a paper entitled Efficacy and Safety of Ustekinumab in Patients with Active Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, results of a phase two open-label extension study, Van Volhaven and colleagues examined the long-term efficacy and safety of ustekinumab, which is a fully human monoclonal antibody that inhibits the P40 subunit of both IL-12 and IL-23 over a two-year period. This is an open-label extension of the initial 24-week phase two study, which compared ustekinumab given eight weeks to placebo. 29 of the 60 patients in the original ustekinumab group and 17 of 42 patients in the placebo crossover group entered the vol- a voluntary extension phase study of which 89% and 82% of the patients respectively received ustekinumab through week 104. In a completer analysis, the SRI4 response at week 112 or eight weeks after the last infusion, 79% of the ustekinumab group and 92% of the placebo crossover group had an SRI4 response. Similar high responses were seen for PGA, active joint count, and the classy count. No new safety signals were seen. Please read this article in more depth to examine the individual components of the SRI response and in the patient-reported outcomes and determine how the findings of this two-year study compared to findings of other long-term studies of medication in SLE. Now, turning to pediatric rheumatology, it's well known that patients with severe systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or SJIA, frequently require inhibition with either IL-2 or IL-16 blockade. In a paper entitled, Anakinra in Patients with Systemic Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis, Long-Term Safety from the Pharma Child Registry on behalf of the Pediatric Rheumatology Trials Organization, or PRINTO, looked at the safety of Anakinra in 306 patients with SJA who were in the registry. The Pharma Child Registry consists of 32 countries from Europe and Asia, 
and 38 centers from 15 of these countries reported data on Anakinra Yusuf, of which the vast majority at 97.7% were from countries in Europe. Of the 306 patients, 30.7% received Anakinra as first-line therapy. The authors found a total of 201 adverse events over a 509.3 patient year period with an overall incidence rate of 39.5 AEs per 100 patient years. Majority of these AEs were mild infections. There were 56 SAEs or an incident rate of 11 per 100 patient years, of which 23.2% were infection and 19.6% and were episodes of macrophage activation syndrome. As seen in most registries examining incidental rates of AEs, they were higher during the first six months, followed by an overall decreasing in the long-term treatment. Treatment was discontinued in 76% of patients, of which again, as expected, it most frequently occurred in the first six months, with the main reasons being inefficacy in 43%, remission in 31%, and an AE or intolerance in 15%. No deaths or or malignancies occurred during anakinic treatment. Read this article to help you guide you in the use of anakinra for both systemic JIA and even adult onset Stills disease. The last article to highlight examines the very topical issue of provision of virtual care for adult and pediatric rheumatoid patients. In an article entitled Breast Practices for Virtual Care, a consensus statement from the Canadian Rheumatology Association, Barber and colleagues on behalf of the Canadian Rheumatology Association used Delphi methodology to develop seven best practices for virtual care. The The topics covered specifically were adherence to existing standards and regulations, to the appropriate of using virtual care in an individual patient, three, the requirement for patient consent, four, the appropriateness of a virtual physical examination in the individual patient versus a in-person examination, five, that Patient-reported outcomes should always be used if possible. Six, that virtual care should be used in addition to impersonal care to enhance care. And seventh, that that use of virtual care could help manage, co-manage complex patients with other physicians and enhance communication. My summary can only highlight the issues that need to be addressed 
And of course, the devil is in the details of the article. On this case, the expansion and rationale of the articles are the important details outlined. The discussion also addresses further steps and issues that need to be done or addressed to enhance patient care in this new era where virtual care is likely to permanently remain. I think this is important reading, particularly during the pandemic. Images in rheumatology this month show a 52-year-old female who had a four-month history of SLE presented to the hospital with a persistent frontal parietal headache, which was accompanied by cognitive dysfunction. She was initially had been treated with high-dose prednisone, two courses of intravenous cyclophosphamide, followed by MMF. The time of presentation, her dose of prednisone was 20 milligrams per day, and the MMF was 500 milligrams twice a day. Her laboratory investigation included a white blood cell count of 7.62, of which 80.5% were neutrophils, with an elevated CRP at 21. A brain MRI showed irregular ring-like contrast-enhanced lesions in the left temporal lobe. A brain biopsy revealed pyogenic abscesses, and a gram stain of the biopsy material showed branching gram-positive rods, and the culture grew nocardia. She was treated with cotrimazole and linozolid. After six months, she had a good clinical and radiological improvement. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the April 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. And please watch my interview with the authors of the highlighted articles, not only of this month, but previous months, if you have missed them. They are available for viewing at both our website and on YouTube. If there are any comments or questions on the highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the May edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.